God's help. We thank you for your word. And I ask that as uh, we read it together and as I attempt to preach it faithfully, that we would come under your goodness and under your authority, that you would protect us wanting to critique your word, but instead to let you, your word and your spirit critique us. And may your spirit enlarge our hearts this morning through this passage to see the goodness, the glory, the love, and the grace of Christ. May that penetrate our hearts as we look at these verses from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. If you guys want to grab your journals, if you don't have a journal, we do have a few. If Christchurch is your home and you didn't get one yet, there's still some on the two tall tables in the back. If you want to grab a First uh, Thessalonians scripture journal, we're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Somebody want to tell me what the main point of First Thessalonians is? Good, good. Oh, you cheaters. <laughs> Come on, Dode, make them work for it a little bit. <laughs> living for Jesus while we're waiting for Jesus or living with Jesus while we're waiting for Jesus is really the, 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 the theme of this verse. It's what runs through uh, this letter. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 for specific ways that we get to live for Jesus while we're waiting for Jesus. Now, one thing that's slightly challenging about these first 12 verses is it begins, or at least one of the main purposes of these verses, is Paul defending himself against people who are slandering him. You guys remember two weeks ago, I don't expect you to, we looked in Acts where this church began, and it says that Paul was in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, so for a month. He preached the gospel, people got saved, the church got started, but then he fled. Actually, the brothers and sisters there, it says, sent him off because the persecution was so bad. And so now time has passed, Paul's not been back, and these people who really uh, are just ego seekers, they want their own following, and and other uh, Jewish leaders are now slandering Paul, saying Paul's a jerk. He just wanted to take your money. He just wanted a big following. And so these 12 verses really are Paul defending himself, saying, no, don't you remember when I was with you? That's not how I acted. And so let me show those to you before, even before it's read. He does these, you know what happened when I was with you. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to read it all in a minute, but I want to set you up for what you're looking for. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you is not in vain. So he's appealing to their memory. Here's what it was like when I was with you. And then a little further down in verse 2, he says, As you know, we had boldness in our God. So he's got this verse 1, For you know yourselves, as you know, in verse 2. Look at verse 5. For he never came to you with words of flattery, as you know. He's going to say it again, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. So he's appealing to their memory. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct. You see what he's doing? So he's defending himself. Listen, the, the leaders know, the bad leaders, and Satan knows that if you can slander the character of the messenger, that people won't believe the message. That's really what this is about. And so Paul's like, look, I don't want you thinking lies about me that might make you not believe the gospel anymore. So this is really about his relationship with the people and how it just undergirds the realities of the gospel. So this morning, we're not going to so much talk about how Paul is using this to defend himself. We're going to look for our lives to see what we can learn about how we need to live with one another 
in order for our lives to be a support to the gospel. So people don't look at us and go, you say you believe that gospel, but your life, your relationships are really jacked up. Like instead, Paul's going, no, they, they shouldn't be. They should be manifested in such a way that it supports the realities of the gospel. So that's what we're going to look at. So Mark's going to come and he's going to read verses 1 to 12. And as he does, I want you to be looking for, what does this tell me about how I need to live with others as I wait for Jesus? How do I live as I wait for Jesus? So Mark, come on and read verses 1 to 12 of chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext of greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mark. So let me begin by asking a couple of questions to get you engaged with this passage. How, how do you think about your relationships? When you think about the people that are in Christ's church, for example, how, how do you process your relationship with them? How do you think about it? When, when you think about the people that are in your community group or in your group of three or men's or ladies meetings, how do you think about those relationships? What, what's your goal in those relationships? What, what guides your thoughts and your feelings and your actions towards them? When, when you're driving to that meeting, what are you thinking about? What are you, what are you expecting to get from the meeting? When you're driving home, what makes you assess, well, that was a really profitable time. That was good. Or, boy, kind of feel like I wasted that hour. Maybe a better question should be, when you're driving home, how is God evaluating that meeting? What is making God evaluate whether that meeting was successful or not? I mean, this passage is all about these types of relationships and how God thinks about them. What about your friend or your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus? And you're going to go spend time with them. What are you looking for? What do you want to see happen? When you're driving home, how do you evaluate whether that time was a success or not? That went well or it didn't go well? Maybe more importantly, we should ask, 
How does God assess that when you're driving home or walking home? What does he think about that? How does he process how well the meeting went or that time with them went? See, this passage, I think, answers some of these questions, which I think is super helpful. Because in context, it's really about Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and their relationship and how they treated and felt for all these people that they had only met for a short time. And I love it that Paul doesn't make a distinction between what it was like interacting to them prior to them being converted to them after being converted, right? He was with them for a month. So for part of that time, they didn't know Jesus. And then after part of that time, they did. But he doesn't distinguish. Well, when you were were pre-converted, I treated you this way. I talked to you this way. I thought about you this way. And then after you got converted, then I shifted and started to do it differently. He doesn't. It's like he just sees people the way he thinks God wants him to see people, and so he treats and talks to them all the same way. And so I think there's stuff in here for us, these 12 verses, to help us to know what it looks like to live in a God-gospel-centered relationships while we wait for Jesus. I mean, these verses, I think, are a gift from God that are meant to help restore and rejuvenate our relationships with each other. Did you ever need that? like a little help focus in what relationships are supposed to be like. Yeah, I know some of you turkeys are very outward, right? You love people. You're with someone, you get energized. It doesn't matter who you're with. And others in this room, it's like five minutes with someone and you're toast. You're done. You're like, that was enough socializing for me for a day. So I feel like these verses kind of help me just get a little of a handle on some practical ways that I'm supposed to live with people that God puts in my life. People in the church, people outside of the church. And so there's this thread, I already mentioned it, that's woven through these verses. And the thread that's woven through these verses is the idea that all of our relationships are meant to be informed and guided by God and the gospel. That's really what they're supposed to be informed by. And so the statement, or maybe I've already given you guys the title. Who's the title people writing the titles for the sermon? Bethany and... Um, somebody else, I can't remember now, my mind's blank. Anyway, here it is. Living in God and in the gospel, how to have a God-gospel-centered relationships while you're waiting for Jesus to return. Let me show you why I say this is all about God and the gospel. It's funny how something can be repeated so many times in 12 verses, I can read it over and over and over again and miss the main thing. You'd think you could get it, right? It's words on a page, So it took me a while, and then finally I realized the main point of this passage is that God and the gospel must be primary in all of our relationships. Let me show you where these are. Get your little colored pencil, whatever you do in your journal, because here they are. Eleven references to God and the gospel in 12 verses. You think that would grab our attention, right? So here they are. Verse 2, Paul talks about his boldness in our God. There's the first one. To declare to you the gospel of God. So verse 2, we got the boldness of, there's first God, to declare to you the gospel of God. And then verse 4, there's three of them. He says, we've been approved by God, entrusted with the gospel. And then he says, to please God. Verse 5, God is witness. Verse 6, we are apostles of Christ. He didn't have to add the of Christ part, right? He said, I'm an apostle. But no, 
I think he's trying to make a point in this passage. Joe is an apostle of Christ. Verse 8, the gospel of God. Verse 9, at the very end of verse 9, the gospel of God. Verse 10, you are witnesses and God also. And then in verse 12, live in a manner worthy of God. I can't help but laugh. I feel like God told Paul to include God so many times to make sure that we wouldn't miss that the point of relationships is God. (laughs) Right? They didn't have the ability to increase the font size or put it in red. So instead, what do they do? Just keep repeating it. Keep repeating it so that it gets our attention. And so I think this whole entire passage is about your human relationships and that they exist for God. They are meant to be for God and with God. That's the point. They're to be grounded in God. God is really to be in the air of all of our relationships. Let me use a negative illustration to make a positive point. You're told in preaching classes never to do that. Don't ever use a negative illustration to make a positive point. I'm going to do it anyway. While I was in Florida, you were here covered in smoke and ash. I saw it on the internet. Some of you texted pictures. So I'm in Florida, and while you're here, there's soot and ash and smoke coming from Canada descending on Mount Airy. And from what I heard, I can say to you this. Let God invade the atmosphere of your relationships the way that the smoke and ash invaded the atmosphere of Mount Airy. It was in the air from what I saw. You couldn't get away from it. It impacted your vision. It impacted your breathing. It impacted whether you went outside or not, right? For some of you, it impacted how long you went outside if you did go outside. It was the topic of much conversation, and it was all over social media, You couldn't get away from the reality that there was smoke and ash in Mount Airy. So let that be true of how God impacts your relationships. May God be in the air of your relationships. May you not be able to get away from him. May it impact your vision and your breathing. May Jesus settle down on every interaction and every conversation just like the smoke and the ash settled down on you. Does that make sense? I just want a little vivid picture to think about the invasion that Christ needs to have in all of our relationships. That is the point. Everything else now in these 12 verses, I think, tease out what does that look like? Because it can sound churchy, right? Let God be the center of all of your relationships. <laughs> right? Let Jesus be the center. Well, what does that mean? How do I do that? So these 12 verses give us at least seven ways to do it. This morning, we're going to cover three of them. And we're going to do the rest next week. But these are just ways that Paul says you want to have your relationships centered on God, centered in Christ and in the gospel, then this is what you need to do. And I think we need this because, and I've been saying this since day one of our church plant, relationships are messy. Relationships are hard. They're hard. I mean, you get two people in a room and you get three opinions. It's just hard, isn't it? I mean, it's just hard. Some people are just hard to love. Some of you are just hard to like. (laughs) 
not really. But you know what? You know what it's like to try to get along with people, right? There's conflict, misunderstandings, miscommunications, wishes, dreams don't come true, hurts and pain and sorrow, and it's all there. And so it's messy. And I think the only thing really that will sustain us in our relationships is the power of the gospel. It's Jesus and wanting him to be at the center of them. And I think then he gives us the ability not just to sustain those relationships so we don't hate one another, but transform them so they can become really wonderful, close, fun friendships that I think God wants us to have together as a church family. And so I pray that these relationships will be a little transformed over the next two Sundays, maybe give a little more life, and maybe help us in our relationships with one another. So there's seven of them. The first one is this. Let me just jump right in. The first one that I hope we can absorb this morning is that if we're going to be God-centered, gospel-centered, then we need to have a bold gospel. We need to have a bold gospel. Let me explain. Look at, look at verse 2 with me, and look what he says. Paul says this. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Okay, we read it again. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. So one of the ways that we are God-centered in our relationships, I think, is to declare or talk about or proclaim God to one another. In other words, it takes words. If we're going to be gospel-centered, you've got to kind of talk about the gospel. If we want to be Jesus-centered, we're going to talk about Jesus, or we're not going to be having him at the center of what we're doing. So he's using words here. So he says this in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, he says that he was entrusted with the gospel. And he says, so we speak. And then in verse 8, he says to share with you not only the gospel, which means he was sharing the gospel, but sharing the gospel. And then in verse 9, he says, we proclaim to you the gospel. So there's a sense in which if we are going to be centered on God and our relationships so that they're fun and enjoyable and, and they do what they're supposed to do in our lives and we've got to be gospel-centered. We've got to know how to speak the gospel to each other. So I, I promised you this 10 years ago. Every Sunday when you come, you're going to hear the gospel in some way. You're going to hear it because I need to hear it and we need to learn how to articulate the gospel and nuance it in different ways and we're different, different people for different reasons. So the, the gospel can be seen in two ways, very micro way, small way, which is Jesus died for my sins. And that's like the most simplistic way to put it, right? You have a Savior who died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins. But then in a macro way, the gospel, I mean, the word gospel just means good news. The gospel is all the good news from flo- that flows from that. And that good news is endless, people. I mean, you start reading your Bible, and it's everywhere. Everything that you benefit from is all rooted in the fact that Jesus took away your sin and made you right with God. It's not even forgiven, and you're clothed in his righteousness. You have no more shame and no more guilt. You don't fear his wrath or anger anymore because he loves you with an everlasting love because his love for you didn't come on you because you were somebody special, <laughs> but because of the gospel. You've been adopted into his family, so you're cherished and loved by him. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. His hand is on your life. He's holding you by the right hand to carry you where he wants you to go. You're, you're secure now and forever all because of what he's done in the gospel. And the list goes on and on and on. There are facets of the gospel that are endless for us to enjoy. We sang about so many of them this morning. Just being free. How good it is to be free. 
free, free from impressing you, free from my sin, free from my guilt, free from the bondage of everything in this world, just free. And that's what Jesus came to do, set us free. So there's many things here. So the church, we kind of use the language, we've adopted the language from Ephesians 4, where we talk about speaking Jesus into one another's lives. That's kind of the, a nuanced way of talking about the gospel to one another. So the focal point, the focus of our relationships should be Christ, which means that when you're in your group of three, or in your community group, and someone is sharing their struggle and their trial, we resist, we try to bypass sharing our personal experience, right, or, or the practicals behind it. And instead, we try to think, like, what do we know about Jesus that will help this person? What do we know about who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, or what he will do that's going to help this person? And so we, we go to that so that Jesus is at the center of our conversation. And so we're leading these people. We're leading each other to Christ and not to our own cleverness or to our own uh, earthly kind of solutions. And I think we're growing in that. I'm excited to hear more and more about how we're doing this. And it takes work and it's hard, but we're doing it. And it's so exciting that, that we've got groups where Jesus is at the center and we're trying to make him the focal point of our conversations and care for one another. Because this really takes boldness to do. Well, he said it was a boldness that Paul said we have to have. If Jesus really is the answer, we need to have confidence and be bold. That yes, I really do believe there's something about Jesus that's going to help you more right now than the practical solution that I think I want to give you. We've got to believe that. There's more power in the gospel than giving you the solution. Elspeth did it for me this week. I was struggling with deep anxiety. And there were a hundred practical... I mean, my anxiety was just stupid. It was over... If I, I'm not even going to share it. It's embarrassing, so I'll share it with you in private, not in public. I didn't need to hear how silly my anxiety was. I knew it was silly. I knew it was. It wasn't practical. It made no sense. If I told you, you'd laugh. But what I needed was for her to tell me something about Jesus to grab a hold of so that I would believe what's true about him and how what he's done for me speaks into my anxiety. And as soon as she did, oh, okay, I'm good for a little bit. And then she had to do it again and again and again because I'm slow on the uptake. Yeah, so, so it's true, but we got to believe it and then be bold enough to take that step. And sometimes in our groups, I think it does mean somebody saying, all right, they just shared. Now, what do we know about Jesus is going to help them? And then you can sit there in awkward silence. And that's okay. Because we're trying to figure this out together. How to really make Jesus, who he is, help us in our lives. Because if we give each other anything other than Jesus... We are giving them anti-Christs. Either we're giving them him or something else. So let's give each other Jesus if we really believe he's our only hope. And let's do it with boldness. Boldness that comes, he says, in our God. It's not a boldness that comes because we know the answers. It's a boldness that comes because we believe that God will help us. God will help us in this. We know that he is truthful. We know about his character. We know about his power. And so we should have this happy confidence as you're driving to your group of three, as you're driving to your community group, you should have this happy confidence that Jesus has everything everyone in this group needs when we meet. So all we've got to do is make sure that he is the center point and the answers will be there. We just got to believe it. And we've got to believe it with boldness. So let me encourage you, make Jesus the main event. 
Make him the main event. Let people share, ask questions, make sure they feel like they've been heard and loved and cared for, and then give them the main event. Tell them about Christ and how something about Jesus is relevant to what they are walking through. Be bold enough to ask your group, how does Jesus connect to what they are walking through? And do the same with your people who don't know Jesus. Be bold in the gospel. Be joyfully happy to talk about Christ, just like you would with your believing friends. Elizabeth and I, this is like six months ago, we met a couple. I forget, they were people who lived the road. We got their mail by accident. We took it to them, started up a conversation, ended up having a dinner, having a meal with them. You know, you, first thing you do when you find something like that is what do you do? You, you look on the internet to find out, like, do I know them from somewhere or does somebody else know them? And you do one of those little searches on Facebook or whatever, like, are they, kill, are they murderers? Like, just want to make sure that we're not going to get slaughtered and buried in the backyard. Like, I don't know. So we went, and from what we saw, we assumed they were believers. So we literally have had no more than a three-minute conversation with them, and suddenly we're in their house talking with them, and you know how it is. You're trying to just make small talk and stuff, and we are talking to them as if they are lovers of Jesus. We're a good 10 minutes in the conversation when I realize they are clueless as to what we're talking about. And so my temptation in that moment is like, oh, I got to back up now and start talking differently. And I thought, well, why? Cat's already out of the bag. <laughs> why would I change it now? Then I thought, why do I ever go into any relationship? People I know don't know and love Jesus yet. Why would I ever not lead with things that are most important to me? And so that's, I think, what Paul's going after. Just be bold. Have a happy joy as you meet people and talk to people and, and weave who you really are in Christ into that in ways that are just natural and normal. Don't shrink back. I think that's what he's saying. Don't, don't shrink back. Be, be God-centered this way. Don't withhold the questions. Don't withhold the comments. Don't withhold the offer to pray for someone. I've never had somebody say no. Never. Now, tomorrow, you're going to ask somebody if you can pray for them, and they're going to say no, and you're going to come email me, or you're going to email me, and you're emailing me right now saying, oh, yeah, well, yesterday hasn't happened to me. I don't know. I think people are more open sometimes than we realize. So anyway, there's the first one. God-centered relationships. Let them be bold gospel proclaiming relationships. Second thing here is you want your relationships to be really revolving around God so they're sustainable and joyful the way that God wants them to be, then make your relationships about pleasing God. Make them about pleasing God. I almost felt silly writing this down because, <laughs> of course, if I want my relationships to be God-centered, I should make them about pleasing God. Sounds simple, seems silly for me to say it, but really, that needs to be our primary goal. It needs to be that I want God to be pleased in this relationship. So look at verses 3 to 6. Look at verses 3 to 6. He says, For our appeal does not spring from me. So he's given us some ways to make them not God-centered or God-pleasing. Sorry, God-pleasing. Instead, here are ways to make them man-pleasing. You ready? So he's going to weave these two together. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, or any attempt to deceive. See how relational these words are? You're relating to people, and you can relate to them in ways of error, ways of being impure, uh, trying to deceive people. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came to you 
with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God our witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles. Do you see the pleasing God in there? <laughs> want to please God, don't want to please man. And so they begin by talking about something that's true of you too. He says that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Do you know that's true of you this morning? You, because of the work of Christ, have been approved by God. Now, this is so relevant to relationships. Because if I really believe I've been approved by God, then I'm not looking for you to approve me. But I've got to believe that I've been approved by God. God has already put his stamp of approval on you. So you don't need anyone else's stamp of approval. Your identity is secure in who you are. So you don't need me to validate your identity in some way or to alter your identity in some way. He says, look, there's an approval that has already happened by God. So now you can move towards people in a healthy way. And so look what he says. He has this list, what are there, five, depending on how you slice it up, of ways that we can go to people when we're not finding approval from God. Does it make sense? See if, see if you recognize yourself in any of these. So I'm going to group the first three together where he says, not an error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. That's in verse 3. Maybe you have done this, or maybe you know others who have done this, but you have a relationship where you realize there is error, deceit, lying, half-truths, people that always put their best foot forward and never want you to see anything that could be negative or bad. Maybe you've withheld information in some way because you knew if people knew how they might respond, and you want to impress them and to be approving you, and so you don't share all the details. I think that's what he's going after here. It, it's, it's those slight things we do that could deceive somebody into thinking we're somebody that we're really not. And then he uses the word flattery. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who flattered you all the time. It's even a funny word, isn't it? Flatter. <laughs> right? It's like, it's like I'm going to bombard you with so many compliments so that you'll like me. That's really what it is. You ever done that? You want somebody to like you so much that you're like, I'm just going to keep telling them how great they are. So eventually they'll like me. I'll keep complimenting them. I'll keep encouraging them. That way they'll like me more. I think I ran in circles before where I saw this, where it was in the ways of honoring someone, where someone would be honored so far and over the top that you wondered, this is extreme. And, and, and now I think even we can see there's ways where people would do that so that I'll be liked. If I honor you in front of other people, then you're going to like me, right? If I hold you up, if I approve of you, then you'll probably like me more. And that's flattery. That's the attempt we can make to get people to like us. And it's not healthy in our relationships. He talks about greed, being greedy, using other people to get what you want. It's, it's a selfishness that can happen. I've experienced these two extreme ways. Maybe extreme examples aren't helpful. But have you ever met somebody and you start to get to know them and they want to go out to eat? So you go out to eat and you get three quarters of the way through the conversation and then they start their sales pitch. You ever been there? So I sell this product 
and you can make money if you join. I've had that happen, and you're like, what on earth? I thought we were going to be friends. <laughs> Instead, this is all about your greed and using me to advance your kingdom. Fourth one here, he uses, I think, language that's really helpful, just seeking glory from people. He said, I didn't seek glory from people. I didn't seek praise from people. I'm not going to people so that I can receive praise and compliments and get my worth and my value from them. And if you've ever been there, where you're seeking just somebody to affirm you in some way. And then he talks about making demands. As apostles, they could have made demands for certain things. Just like I think pastors can poorly and wrongly make demands of people in ways that are not helpful. But he's saying, we didn't do it. We didn't make demands. We didn't make ultimatums for people. You ever do that? All right, I'll go back to that small group one more time and John just stops talking about, right? If he brings that up one more time, I'm out. I'll find another group. I'll find another church, (laughs) right? We make demands. Maybe not outwardly, but in our own hearts, we're making these demands. Things go a certain way with these certain people, then I'll continue, but if they don't, I won't. I think that's what he's getting at here. I think that for me, as I read these lists, and I thought, okay, how how did this thing happen in my heart where I I do things to please people and not to please God? I realize there's often just a war going on in my own soul. You ever feel that? Sometimes it's hard even to identify. Like, was that pleasing man or was that pleasing God? And there can be this war. And I I just would want to encourage us to be aware of the fact that, yes, there's a war going on in your soul when you're with people between, am I really wanting to please God or am I pleasing them? Do I want to please God more than I'm pleasing them? And just to be aware of that. Like, why am, why am I engaging in this conversation? Why am I part of this relationship? And at the root of it, is there a desire there that says, I really just want to please God in this? Because, listen, the very best thing you can do for me in our relationship is to make pleasing God first. Amen. It's true. And the very best thing I can do for you is for us to build relationships together where my aim is not to please you, but to please God. Because when I please God in our relationship, you're going to get out of it what God wants you to get out of it, which is usually more God. Right? I I trust there's little illustrations running through your head of times where you've gone to people knowing my goal is not to please God in this. Or my goal is definitely just to get something out of this from you. As opposed to, no, I, I really want just to please God in how we interact with one another. And so in other little categories, you're driving to your group of three, your community group, and driving home. Did I participate in that, genuinely wanting to please God or please people in that interaction? And I, and I know there's a struggle in our minds that goes, well, I thought I was supposed to love people, so how, I'm pleasing God and not pleasing people. Then how do I love people without making it my aim just to please them? And so I think Paul answers that question next when he talks about this self-giving love. This is the last one we'll do this morning. He talks about this love that he has, this affectionate love for the people. So there's this possibility then for me to say that I love Jeff Janeska with an affectionate love, but I'm also going to live with him and move towards him in a way that pleases God and not man. Those two aren't in competition with each other. Does that make sense? They work together. So let's take a minute and talk about this love that Paul says that he has for the people. So in verse 7, He says, but we were, and there's just some really affectionate, um, passionate words in these verses. Verse 7, he says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Do you see the the love and the, the gentle care that's there? 
This is what he says he had for them. Verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we're ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, because you had become very dear to us. I mean, do you see the almost romantic kind of language in this passage? There's gentleness. There's care. There's affection, affectionate desire. There, there's being very dear to one another. I mean, Paul felt this for them. I don't think he's lying or exaggerating after four weeks of being with them. And I think how much more can't we cultivate those same things for each other after 10 years of being together with one another? Now, I've, I've read in many places where it is not healthy for a pastor to share with the church his love for the church. I, I don't think that's right in light of this passage. It seems that Paul kind of goes over the top to share his affection and his love for the people that he's caring for. And so without any manipulation, which I know all kinds of things can be woven into things like this or my desire to please you, <laughs> you need to know that there is a genuine love in my heart for all of you. Members of Christ Church, there is a love for you. When I am praying for you, there is a stirring in my heart of affection for you. When I am putting messages together, I literally will sit here and I'll scan the room in my brain, since you all sit in the same place, <laughs> and I'll think about you, where you're at, what you've been through, what you're struggling with, and I'm praying that into this. So you're not just getting a message that I could take to another church. It's for you. And, and, and I don't think I've done a whole lot to ask God to cultivate a deep love for all of you. I just think it's what God does when he calls pastors. I think you've been called. God just does it, and you really don't have a choice. It's kind of like he just does. He just puts a love. I have a love for you guys. And, and I, I think this is an okay time for me to share that all of you, members or not, obviously have the freedom to leave and go to any other church anytime you want. I just want to make sure you understand that when that happens, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to your fellow brothers and sisters that are part of the church, and it hurts. It hurts when people leave. I've shed many tears over people who have left our church. Elizabeth has shed many tears. I know that it's hard. Relationships are hard. And so all I ask is that if God leads you to go somewhere else at some point, which he may do, that we have fun, good conversations about it, that you can share with me what God's doing in your life. Even if we, it's something over we disagree over, to still engage and talk about it rather than just leave. Because it's a part of our hearts that are joined together. It's, it's for real. I don't understand it. I keep my finger on it all the time. But we're the body of Christ. And that's not just universal. That's Christ church. But we're one, and we're loving each other. And so there's an there's a affection that happens that will bring hurt when we depart at some point. So just be aware of that. Know that you are impacting other people's hearts more than you know. You are. And so I just pray that we as a church can continue to grow this way. Look, if we have a strength as a church, I think it could be this. I think there is a genuine, gentle, loving, affectionate care that we have for one another. I've seen it worked out. It's there. And I am grateful for that. And I would just say, let's just keep cultivating that. Let's keep digging into that. Because there will always be people in our lives that are easier to love than others. Right? 
There will be. And so here's the encouragement. I'm going to give you a couple little steps, just practical, because I know that right now you're thinking of that person that's hard to love. So just be thinking for a moment. And I would just encourage you to do this. I would encourage you to pray. Spirit, increase my affectionate love for and name the person. Not out loud now. <laughs> when you're praying, do it. Say, God, I, I, I want to love this person with an affectionate love. Tell God. Spend time with that person. We're a small church. I love it. The Masons are putting together these groups where they mix us all up. I don't know whether you got your group of three that you're going to have dinner with. Maybe you looked at them and went, oh, no. <laughs> I didn't, Lisa. I don't see where's a... Yeah. So I didn't. So I just say, see if you can spend time with that person. And thirdly, and last, this is maybe the most important thing, is you got to speak Jesus into it. So you got to meditate on how Jesus loves you so that you'll love them the same way you got to go there. So you got to go to places like Ephesians 2 where it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, he made you alive together with Christ. Meditate on that. Meditate on the prayer in the next chapter about how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. And let that be the power and the fuel for you to love the people that might be a little harder to love. May that be the foundation, the driver for you to say, I want to please God and not man, but I want to go to them with an affectionate love, with a genuine heart that loves them. I, I love Mark's prophetic word this morning and your follow-up. Like, I think there's things, as Mark was sharing, I was thinking, there, there are some things about love in my life that I don't know if I believe will ever change. And I was like, why do I believe that? I, I shouldn't believe that. No, they can change. And I need to ask God to help me to change them and to increase my love for certain situations or certain people. And so let's do that. Let's press in. Let's press in together. God, come on. Help us to genuinely, affectionately care for and love one another more in the days to come so that when you're driving to your community group, to your group of three, you can be thinking, God, help me to love and name the people more. Help me to have affectionate love for them more. Help me to deeply love them and to care for them today. And then you're driving home, you can say, yes, the Spirit helped me to have a genuine love for the people that are in my group and in my church. So there's three. Make Jesus the main event. Please God, not people. Have affectionate love. And that's a way for us to have gospel, God-centered community together. And I want to share with you this morning some other practical ways that Tyler, Jordan, and I want to help that happen um, we realize that there's still, we're still a little bit relationally constipated, maybe, <laughs> since COVID, for whatever reasons, I don't know. And so we're realizing, and we, and we talked about this prior to COVID. We sat and talked about, okay, what do, we, what do we need to shift with our community groups? How can we help people not be legalistic, but create atmospheres and environments for us to do these things, to be God-centered, to talk about Christ, to express love to one another? So let me, let me kind of give you a little scenario here, or a little picture of what we're uh, trying to do over the summer to see what happens and then how that carries us into the fall. So, uh, as you know, Tyler and Jordan were both community group leaders prior to them becoming pastors. And the COVID hit the day after they became pastors, I feel like. And then everything blew up. And, and we began, then, okay, what, what does it look like? We had groups of three, which were really helpful. They got us through a lot of that. I think right now our groups of three are probably some of the strongest, healthiest growing categories we have in our church. But we realize that still a lot of people are slipping through the cracks. 
So here's what we're doing. We've taken the church and we've divided it up into three groups. The groups are basically based on what the old community groups used to be, plus adding people who have come new in the last five years or so. So Tyler has a group of people. I have a group of people. Jordan has a group of people. Before, I don't know where your minds are going. That means that you cannot talk to me if, that's what I'm trying to, you get where I'm going? Okay. The point is, we're just doing this so that we are able to pray better and so that we're able to care better. But we're also going to be leading community groups. So each of us are going to have a group of people that we're going to be inviting to participate in, once a month at least, community group type setting, like old school community group stuff. So each of us will do that once a month. But we're going to do it this morning. Tyler made a slide. You can go to anyone you want. So, for example, Chip and Missy Detroit will receive an email from Matt Maker that says, we're going to have this meeting at the Hivelees on this day. You see that slide. You don't get an email from me or from the Hivelees that says you're invited. You can still come. So you can be here on a Sunday and go, oh, look, they're meeting next Sunday after church. I want to be part of that. Come on. That's perfectly fine. So we're not making these hard, fast groups. It's more of we don't want people to fall through the cracks. Does that make sense? So you can go to any group. You can go to all of them. Then we're also going to try to do something that's more care-oriented. So the first one for Tyler and Jordan are going to be lots of little kids running around on their right, your once-a-month community group kind of thing. But then we're also going to do something that's more for just caring for one another. So it'll be, um, come and we're going to talk about our marriages, our, our family, our struggles, our trials, and we're just going to care for one another. So you'll be getting invitations to participate in those. We need you to respond, letting us know if you're coming or not, because it helps us plan. And then let us know, if, you, if you're here on a Sunday and you see the announcement, like, hey, I want to go to that group, I didn't get invited, just let us know. And, should I say this, you can come to and get care from any one of us anytime. Anyone of you, to any one of us, anytime. There's no rules. There's no, you got to go to him or me or whoever you feel more comfortable with, whoever you want to get care from at any time, you let us know and we're there for you. So Tyler, Jordan, and I are really purposely trying to free up our calendars so we have more time for care, for giving care, for receiving care uh, with one another. So did I leave anything out? I know you would have said it better, but no, you would have. All right, so can we, do we have slide? Okay, so for example... And groups of three are going to come up first, and this is the same thing. So we have eight groups of three that meet every week. And some of them are way bigger than three, <laughs> which we kind of got to work. We got to work on that maybe a little bit. A little subdividing might be helpful. But so you look at this. You see there's eight different groups. They meet on different days of the week at different times. And so Tyler, Jordan, and I, our only concern, maybe concern is the wrong word, passion, desire, is that every member of Christ Church would be in one of these groups. And you can start one. I send out an email every week, review and apply. It's all you got to do is just talk about, read the passage, and okay, what's God doing in your heart in light of the passage? It's not complicated. So if you're not part of one and you're like, oh, none of those work anyway, and you've got somebody else and you want to start one, do it. And you get the email and you can do that. So there's, there are the groups. Um, we can email this out, right? We'll email it out to everybody so you can see when they meet and where. And then if you need another one at another time, then start one. All right, next slide then, which... There's more details to be coming here, but then these are the larger meetings. Uh, I, I think because Jordan has a lot of vacation in July, he's going to wait till August to do one. But um, so that you're going to contact the Hivelys if you want to come next Sunday after the gathering. That's the group that Elspeth and I are kind of leading, but the Hivelys are really doing a lot of work to support us in that. Um, Goldens, you can't have one on the same day. Sorry. Stink. <laughs> All right. So now you got to pick. Who do you like more? 
And then, and then there's, and then there's um, a second one, the end of July, uh, at the Goldens also. That's the couple's one that they're having, the care one that we talked about. And I'll be letting you guys know when the care one's going to be that Elspeth and I will host um, either here or at our house. Does this make sense? Okay, I, I know that everyone in this room has different church histories. And so when you see this, I know there's different things running through your mind. So please come and ask us questions. Like, hey, when you said that, did you mean this? Did you mean that? Make sure we're talking through this. The, the purpose of this is that everyone's getting care. You're all being cared for because we need it because life's hard and there's trials and struggles. And so that we can practice what's being said. We can live what's being said in even just these verses. We've got to have atmosphere where we're loving each other, uh, speaking Jesus to one another, inviting lost people to be a part of it so they can grow. Like, we, we need that. And so this is our attempt over the summer. Let's get some of this under our belt, kind of get a little bit of a restart. And then as fall comes, we'll know how to approach uh, the new school year and what's going on there. So, and we're always open to thoughts, input that you have about... Um, how we're doing these kind of things, and how we can help us grow together as a church family. Sing a song. How do we do this? Can we take three or four minutes? Um, you can obviously talk to other people around you and stuff. I, I don't want to let this moment go by. I'd love for you to look at back at the three ways that we can be God, gospel-centered, and just take a minute. I just want you to pray. Just pray and consider, okay, maybe one of those three stood out to you more. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the one that I really need to work on more. I need to have more affectionate love, or I really got to stop. I really got to learn more about what it means to speak Jesus into these uh, relationships. Whatever the, one of the three, and just take a minute and just pray. Pray. Pray for our church, that God would help us to love one another more deeply and richly. Okay, so let's just do that. A couple minutes for you and God, you and your family around you, or friends around you. If you want to pray together or chat with them about it and then pray, that's cool. Just take a couple minutes before the moment's gone, and then we'll sing a song. Deal?